Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Brought to You by Chemistry. Now, if you're new to this, you're probably wondering what's brought to you by chemistry? Complicated reactions? Complicated exams? Even more complicated romances? Yes, yes, and yes. But it's also a podcast from the Royal Society of Chemistry. You see what we did there? That's branding, yeah? And it breaks down the molecular matter of everything, from high-flying electric vehicles to the common compost bin. My name is Dr. Alex Lathbridge, and in this series, we're taking a deep dive into the world of antimicrobial resistance. From what happens when the drugs that we use to treat infectious diseases no longer work, to how the mismanagement of antibiotics can impact the environment. On today's episode, I've got two experts, Dr. Jerry Wright and Professor Alison Holmes. Honestly, they're experts in their own right. One is a researcher in antibiotic discovery, and the other leads a multidisciplinary infectious disease research program focusing on antimicrobial resistance. I'll let them introduce themselves. So, hello there. I, I'm Alison Holmes. So, I'm a um, professor of infectious diseases, and I um, work at um, Imperial College London and also at the University of Liverpool. And I'm a clinician by background, infectious diseases physician, but I have been doing a lot of work um, nationally and internationally in the field of addressing how we can use antibiotics better. Good morning for me. Uh, I'm Jerry Wright. I'm uh, a professor of biochemistry and biomedical sciences at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, here in Canada. Uh, I've been working in the area of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance now uh, for about 30, well, over 30 years. Uh, my background is uh, chemistry, so I have a PhD in chemistry, um, but uh, have tremendous interests in, in the biological aspects and the evolutionary aspects of, of AMR and, and the discovery of new antibiotic candidates. Amazing. I'm, I'm very happy to be joined by two experts um, and people who passed uh, exams that I did not. Um, so um, antimicrobial resistance, like all of it is really complex. And sometimes you hear about it like in the news and stuff. But what actually is it? Could you like very briefly explain what what is it? And why is it something so important for us to know about? So you asked Alex, what does it mean? So it means um, it means that microbes are resistant to the drugs that we have to treat infection. So it's drug-resistant infection, but it's even more than that. It's the transmission of resistance and what it means in terms of being able to treat people when they really need it, and being able, the populations in the world being able to access effective treatment. And, um, but, you know, fundamentally, it's actually an evolutionary process. I mean, microbes, um, you know, it's Darwinian that any exposure to an antibiotic and they will develop resistance. So, you know, it's a fundamental evolutionary issue that we have to mitigate by um, using antimicrobials as best we possibly, possibly can. Um, and, there's a huge amount, huge amount to do so that we can kind of preserve them and um, and, and sustain 
healthcare and ensure the people that need them can access effective treatment. Amazing answer. Jerry, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, I think one of the uh, interesting things that, that people don't realize is that antibiotics are unlike all other drugs that we have. Um, like you will never be become resistant to your blood pressure medicine or your cholesterol lowering medications that extend your, your that extend your life and, and prevent cardiovascular disease. But microorganisms, um, as as Allison pointed out, are live entities that are distinct from us with a very rapid life cycle and ability to sample genetic space in a very rapid fashion. And as a result, um, they do uh, evolve resistance and as uh, you know through natural selection, as as Allison pointed out. And they also pass these these genetic elements amongst themselves. And because we live on an ever-connected uh, planet, if they do so in one part of the world, the chances are that those microbes will come to visit us in our hospitals or in our communities uh, in a short period of time is, is almost inevitable. And you know we've just been living through uh, and not quite through yet uh, a global pandemic that is that we've seen spread around the world through transportation and uh, the interconnectedness of the world in the 21st century. And as a result, antimicrobial resistance, um, very much like, like viruses that have emerged in different parts of the world, can move around the globe in incredibly rapid fashion. And so if we don't understand that it's not just a local problem in a hospital, but it's actually a global uh, phenomenon, uh, you know, we risk uh, not understanding the full scope of the problem. Jerry, I think you touched on something really interesting there, talking about like the state that we're in now. But like, how did we get to where we are now in 2022? Like, how did we first develop these antimicrobials? And how did we get to where we are now? Yeah, it's good to remember that, you know, prior to the beginning of the 20th century, the major cause of death <laughs> was through infection. That our inability to control infectious diseases, whether bacterial, viral, fungal, uh, or parasite, parasites, um, was the major reason why we died. Um, and antibiotics, the discovery of antibiotics, frankly, changed the way we die. Um, and that started uh, for with a bit of a history lesson, you know, as a result, honestly, of the German dye industry of the 19th century. So there were these remarkable compounds that were coming out of that industry that were used in the textile industry um, that were, were sampled by some of the pioneers in antibiotic discovery. Paul Ehrlich is the first person uh, you know, noted to do so in the early uh, part of the 20th century who found the first compound, that molecule, that stopped the growth of an infectious organism. This is the organism that causes syphilis, Treponema pallidum. That was in 1910. So that was the first real antibiotic. And the second one that came out was in the 30s, for, from again, from the German dye industry, and that is the first sulfur drugs. Protonso was the first one. But that was all upstaged with the discovery that you, you know, we're all familiar with. Actually, you know, uh, uh, I think uh, today is the anniversary of the discovery of penicillin in 1928 by Alexander Fleming, who was able to to identify this, the fact that this fungus, this mold was on a plate was, was killing off uh, bacteria that were on the plate. And in, you know, 10 or 15 years later, 
with uh, an enormous amount of effort, uh, international effort, um, penicillin uh, was was re basically released to the masses, which completely changed medicine. Right? It was super non-toxic molecule that you can use to treat infectious diseases caused by bacteria. And that created basically a gold rush of efforts to identify new antibiotics. And almost all the antibiotic classes that we use today were discovered in the next 10 or 15 years. The really? mid part of the 20th century, yeah. So so we've gone from you know that mid part of the 20th century. Now we're sort of in the early 21st century. Um, yes, Alex, that's how time works. Ignore me, I'm an idiot. Now, I think both of you, you know, really approach this science um, in really sort of interesting and sort of interdisciplinary ways. And as we are now in 2022, like, why are we at a stage where antimicrobials and sort of antimicrobial resistance is like something that we need to sort of be worried about? I guess it's either of you, but sort of Alison? It's not a new worry, Alex. So, um, so that, you know, Alexander Fleming, as we've just heard, and can I just say, so that's his lab, you know, the lab that grew the mold on his plate that he left out and got um, covered in penicillium. Um, so that's in St. Mary's in Paddington, and it's a really extraordinary little laboratory, and it's in, quite incredible. Um, so that that's there at St. Mary's Hospital, Imperial Paddington, and it's quite a remarkable discovery. And I just want to flag that there's an amazing musical called The Mold That Changed, That Saved the World, which is all about that incredible discovery and what it meant. But sorry, this is a roundabout way of me getting back to, it was completely predictable. Fleming predicted that, you know, use these you know, product judiciously because resistance will develop. So it's absolutely not a new concept. It was completely known that any expo you know, exposure will lead to resistance. So it's absolutely not a new phenomenon. Um, and, you know, it's had major warnings that, um, you know, exposure will drive resistance. So use, use products carefully. So it's just been, you know, it's just increased and increased and increased. And I think um, there's a huge amount of focus on and, and investment in the need for new antimicrobials. We need new agents, but we're not seeing too many of them. And in fact, pretty disappointing. And we have to make sure that we look at all the different other ways that we can address the issue of drug resistant infections, such as preventing infections to begin with, so that we can minimize the use of antimicrobials. And, you know, that includes water and sanitation, um, prevention of infection within, within hospitals, vaccination, and remind ourselves about another great chemist, um, Pasteur, who um, recognized the importance of infection prevention. But so, so Alex, it's not a new problem, it, entirely predictable. And we have a bit of an issue with there's not enough drugs um, coming through that are new. And we need to be looking at much more effective ways of, of minimizing the need for antimicrobials so that we can really, really preserve their effectiveness. So, I mean, when it actually comes to the resistance to this medication actually happening, now, is it something that's completely random? Like, could a, a bacteria 
randomly develop a mutation that gives it resistance to an antibiotic or an antimicrobial that it would never actually see, if that makes sense. Some of it is just uh, the, uh, an accumulation of random mutations. So when a cell divides, it makes a copy of its DNA and there's, it's never 100% identical. Right. There's always a small error rate. In fact, that's in, that's the reason why we've been able to evolve life on the planet. That, those small uh, random mutations that uh, over time, over geologic time, result in a really significant uh, diversification of life. Uh, in, the, in the context of antibiotics, uh, uh, this natural um, uh, error rate in the, in the copying of DNA results in the accumulation of, of mutations the vast majority of which are benign, have nothing to do with resistance. But when there is a selective pressure, you know, Darwinian uh, natural selection, if, there, if there's an antibiotic in the environment, uh, in a hospital, in a farm, um, in a person, uh, and that mutation provides a selective advantage, that is that they, those organisms can live and the other ones can't, then you get you know, what we call resistance. But that's just part of it, the issue. So the antibiotics that have been on that we have primarily focused on Fleming's uh, penicillin, uh, the all the other mycins that came out, streptomycin, vancomycin, uh, tetracyclines, all of these things are products of the microbes in the environment. This is how we got all these wonderful things. They're, they are uh, molecules that were made, that are made by organisms that live on the planet. And, you know, the antibiotics that they're making are old. You know, we did a, an estimate for this uh, one antibiotic called vancomycin that it probably evolved along with the resistance mechanism about 350 million years ago. So these are part, they're baked into the microbial uh, genetic landscape of the planet. And these genes can move. And as a result, when you have this selective pressure, like we've done this experiment in people that we've never done on a planet before, right? So antibiotics changed the way that we died because we, we industrialized the use of antibiotics that have been in as part of, um, a part of the, the, the ecosystem you know, for millennia. When we, when we changed, when we did this experiment, that is we, had, we exposed the world to tons of antibiotics. We created a selective pressure that just never existed before. So not only does, do you have the random sort of natural sort of evolution of, of resistance through the, through the era of DNA copying, you also have this pre-existing reservoir of resistance genes that given an appropriate selection pressure and time, you will <clears> eventually <throat> see them move into, the, into, into a clinically relevant organisms. And that's really the second part of the, the wonderful story of antibiotics is that the use of antibiotics begat the distribution of resistance genes. And then as, as Allison pointed out, because we haven't been able to keep up with new agents, especially over the last 25 or 30 years, you know, we've really eroded our ability to, to treat infectious diseases all the same time that resistance continues to, to increase. And then if I can, if I can um, expand on what Jerry has just said, Alex, I mean, we, you know, this is this is all happening, and then we design um, and have healthcare systems where we put the most vulnerable people in, in terms of vulnerability to infection, um, and they're in an environment where there's the most concentrated exposure 
of antimicrobials. So you have the most vulnerable people, the highest exposure of antimicrobials, and then the issue about the types of infections that are highly resistant that then happen in healthcare and get amplified um, is, is a major problem. And, you know, and so much of our healthcare depends on being able to um, um, protect people from infection. But yet within healthcare, it's a major challenge because masses are being used and it's also where the most vulnerable are in terms of the infection and you know not just in terms of individually vulnerable but you know surgical procedures any intervention all makes people vulnerable to infection you need antibiotics and, and they'll need antibiotics that work okay so i think what both of you said is really fascinating especially jerry that the idea of you know there already being this natural mechanism by which these you know microbes have the ability to overcome sort of antimicrobials and having that antimicrobial resistance but also mm. us engineering selection pressures through our own healthcare um just sort of um how we are right now now i i was always taught that as a kid that um the the reason why anti sort of antimicrobial resistance or especially sort of antibiotic resistance um happens is because if you get prescribed say you know two weeks of an antibiotic and then you only take 10 of it then you're going to sort of lead to sort of anti more antibiotic resistance generally a bad time is that like is that something correct Alison? so that's needing a lot of attention to readdress that because that message is a bit of a myth um actually more and more work is showing that shorter and shorter courses are effective um there are some syndromes where it is important to take a, a long course, but more and more data is showing that shorter courses are, are better for some things. Um, so that, <clears throat> that's a bit of a, a myth, Alex, that needs, to be, um, that needs to be shifted. I think there's some really interesting um, data and technology that is going to be helping uh, us understand how, how we can be much more um, personalized in our approach to prescribing antibiotics and, and, you know, precision prescribing, which depends on a lot of input from chemistry as well. So we can kind of understand much more how much to give and how long, because, you know, everybody is not the same. A child is not the same as an elderly person, as a pregnant person, as a different, so we there are ways that we can we can find out um, how to prescribe with much more precision and a much more personalised approach. And emerging technology and work with um, uh, um, chemists and um, is really going to help with this. On that very natural segue into my following question uh, that the Royal Society of Chemistry have asked very specifically that I ask. Um, this is a completely natural conversation. People talk about this idea of like a, a one health approach to to dealing with this issue i mean what very briefly like what is that about i mean lots lots of people will not have heard of what that is so one health is the is is the understanding that that human health is is deeply interconnected with animal health and environmental health and that and We've just lived through again with the pandemic. If I can use that as an example, a great, a great example of this. So, so 
microorganisms that have reservoirs in animals and and accessible in environments that normally we don't get to, when they are uh, removed from there, can threaten uh, human health. So that you know, so we're all, we're only as vulnerable as or, or as safe as the, uh, the distribution of of infectious organisms and the genes uh, in environments that, uh, and also in, in animal reservoirs. So this interconnection is really important to understand. I, I, I'm just wanting to expand on that in terms of the um, food and livestock. So, so I mean, the other thing to um, kind of flag, Alex, is that, of course, antimicrobial resistance is, could be considered under um, food security. I've mentioned it in terms of health security because actually Healthcare depends, and sustained healthcare and the delivery of it depends on access to antibiotics that um, um, are effective. But also, our food security, um, you know, is, is is part of this as well. And minimizing the use in in livestock is absolutely critical. Is absolutely critical, and is being is being done effectively in lots of places. Isn't that right, Jerry? You agree with that? Of course. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um... It's really hard to, to to untangle these connections, and so we tend to, uh, as experts, we tend to focus on the things that we're actually really interested in. But it's really important to understand, especially with infectious disease, just how interrelated these these areas are. And we all eat; we all have food that comes from all around the world uh, with different farming practices. And so one has to be very careful to not forget um, the impact of of this, both you know, this international trade, but also the impact of, of food and food security. Um, in terms of food, I mean, why is it important that we think about food security? Why is it important that we think about sort of livestock when it comes to antimicrobial resistance? Because I understand for us personally, like if I take, if I'm taking medicines, that that can directly impact my health. But why, why livestock? Why do you have to think about that? So firstly, you don't, you don't want to be using the antibiotics that the human population may depend on and slosh them around with gay abandon um, where they're not needed. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, the other thing is wanting to make sure that the um, not only um, uh, antibiotics and antimicrobial resistance are not um, uh, um, are not driven by what happens in food production, but also that the that resistance itself is not passed um, along in, in food as well. And this is why, you know, the issues of all the other things that can be done for prevention and um, good, you know, good, good livestock maintenance is all is 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 all there. I mean, some parts of the world, the amount of antimicrobials being used. Um, is really, really um, quite, quite extraordinary. But in many parts of the world, that's been addressed very nicely. And um, you can hear, you know, Dame Sally Davies talking about what they do in the fish industry, um, and how, you know, transforming that by vaccinating fish, which just seems quite extraordinary when um, we're struggling in healthcare to sort things out. Well, I think you've, Alison, you made a really good point, and that is, um... So, uh, you know, the UK and, and Europe really have, have led the way in, in, in reducing the amount of antibiotics that are used in food production, food animal production in particular, but also crop protection as well. We've seen this as, 
especially the use of fungicides uh, in in uh, crops and 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 other uh, plants that are spilling over into antifungal resistance in the hospitals. Um, but it's again, you know, Alex, it's this issue of Darwinian selection where you uh, you have a selective pressure and then microorganisms will rise to the occasion. And um, and so while uh, North America has been slower to to emulate Europe in terms of uh, reducing the um, the antibiotic use of food production, other parts of the world, uh, that's not the case. And it really does reflect, you know, one of the issues that we tend to gloss over because we think of it as scientists, but the equity issues that are associated with antibiotic use and antibiotic, the consequences mm -hmm. of antibiotic resistance are really challenging. So it's very easy for us to say, well, other parts of the world where you, you should get your act together and not, you know, dump um, tons of antibiotics into, wow. uh, into uh, agriculture. I mean, it really, there is no easy... Um, uh, infection prevention control mechanisms where you can't get clean water, where it's it's much cheaper to get antibiotics um, than it is to get um, to get um, you know um, sewage and water treatment. So these are inextricably li linked, um, and and as I mentioned, because of the international connections around the world, we're all we're just as vulnerable here as we are um, uh, to the to the practices that parts of the world. And so we must also consider the equity uh, and, and fairness issues across the globe when it comes to this, to the use of antibiotics and not be finger wagging, um, which is, I think, what we tend to do. So, Jerry, that's really interesting. And I'm so glad that you reminded me and us about antifungals and this issue about spraying azoles over crops and the impact on fungal resistance that is real and being seen. So I'm really, I'm really glad you made me think again and and because we hadn't talked about fungal resistance quite so much. And that's such a big issue. And I also I think the issue of equity is absolutely critical. And I also think that, you know, the um the burden of antimicrobial resistance is is not hitting the world in the same way, I mean, it's West Africa that's particularly um, you know, major, major burden of, of causing morbidity and mortality. But the other issue about equity is if we're only looking at producing new agents, the population that will benefit from new agents is going to be absolutely tiny. And, and that's why kind of looking at approaches that prevent infection, optimize usage, are going to be really, really critical because whenever a new agent comes along, it's going to be the same issue anyway, but we really, really need to do much more about the kind of prevention aspect um, to, to be much more equitable. I love it. You see, this is why Heron and Lizzie and Hannah provide us with experts, people who really care and really know lots and lots about things. So that makes me very, very happy. Now, I mean, as you've both pretty much said the overarching um, message here is that it's a huge um, problem that has sort of lots of different angles. Um, so in particular, like what what's the work that you're doing that's sort of looking at this? How's your work um, being applied in, in this area? Jerry, I'm going to start with you because it is early in the morning there. So that means after this recording, you're going to be working. So what 
my group does, we have two major areas of, of interest. One is understanding the, the, the molecular mechanisms of resistance and its evolution in, in great detail. Where does resistance come from? What do those reservoirs of resistance out in the environment look like? How are genes moved around? Uh, and get into the pretty uh, nitty gritty details of understanding the, the, the proteins and genes associated with resistance with an objective to, you know, if you really understand it, then you can develop ways to countermeasures to, to address it. So um, this has been a very uh, powerful way to address antibiotic resistance uh, over the last 40 years. That is to develop inhibitors of resistance mechanisms that you could, that you give with an, uh, you know, a so-called old antibiotic to rescue it from resistance. And that's, that's a strategy that I think continues to bear fruit um, and will continue for the, for the foreseeable future. The other aspect that we work on is actually we're going back to, the, to that old source of, of antibiotics, the microbes that live in the environment to look for new drugs or drug candidates. I need to be very careful. Uh, making a drug is, is a very, very hard a very time consuming and expensive thing. And we're not resourced to be able to do that. But what we do like to do is try to find new candidates. So when you use the approaches that folks did in the past, you tend to find the same agents all the time. You tend to find tetracycline again, it's very easy to do or streptomycin again. But now with the advent of genome sequencing and synthetic biology, you can actually go in and narrow in on the genetic programs that make molecules that maybe we haven't seen before. Some of these might be antibiotics and, and we've had actually significant success and the field is really moving in that direction. That is the application of very modern 21st century kinds of micro, um, biotechnology to be able to find new, new uh, drug candidates for the future. So the two uh, sort of yin and yang of my laboratory are to understand resistance, but also to look to the future to try and find new new drug candidates. Wow, that's a lot. Um, and um, Alison, I, I want to say you can top that, um, but I actually think that you can't. Um, I think Jerry has he's blown us away and he's done it from like seven hours in the past. So we should all pack up and go home. No, I'm kidding. So Alison, uh, your work here in the UK, I mean, you look at lots of different things. I mean, could you please give us a brief overview? What are the what are the different moving pieces that you look at? Yeah, certainly, Alex, I will. But you kind of preface that with work that I do in the UK, and certainly we've got an amazing group of researchers. But I just want to uh, echo something Jerry said, which is actually the importance of working internationally, and this is a global problem and how important it is that we work with people around the world. And that has actually been fantastic and so important in terms of informing questions and, and, and driving research. But in the UK, actually I'm gonna, so I work with a incredible multidisciplinary team. I, um, I have uh, something called a Center of Antimicrobial Optimization um, CAMO and also a health protection research unit that's funded by the NIHR. Uh, and it's a real joy to work in a multidisciplinary way. And um, we do a lot of research around optimizing how we can use antimicrobials from different perspectives, from um, social sciences and policy, 
to um, technology and innovation. But because of this podcast, I'll stick to the kind of technology and innovation side, which involves working with the most brilliant chemists. So I'm going to do a shout out to um, Tony Cass and to Danny O'Hare, who are just complete geniuses, and it's wonderful to work with them. Um, and we're doing a lot around how can we use um, data and technology to inform how we use antibiotics better to not just um, improve clinical outcomes and the treatment of infections and also the treatment of difficult infections, um, but also how we can um, minimize um, uh, resistance emerging and uh, prescribe antimicrobials much more precisely. And, 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 and as Jerry said at the very beginning, it's not like other drugs because you need to think about um, not just the person, but the organism and the changing physiology and how things really change in terms of how you process, uh, process the, the, the drug. And it's been incredibly interesting to think about how we can look at that much more closely how can we use um, biosensors, um, electrical chemistry? How can we use um, microneedle technology to um, use small patches to um, detect and monitor how much um, drug you have in you um, and how you can tailor that for the infection and for the individual? And how can you use that technology also to look at the host responses at the same time? How can you use that data to inform a vast data, ignorant database on how to use antibiotics more effectively in different populations? And it's really exciting. And I, I also think that, um, you know, our experience with COVID is, uh, is really opened the door for people expecting much more from technology and diagnostics we could start looking at point of care testing for um, um, drug levels, um, as well as issues about host factors and from whether it's microneedle patches or um, lateral flow tests, we can start applying this in a way to really innovate um, how we can use antimicrobials better. So you've, you've both explained how there are lots of different parts here that we all really need to to look at but realistically um what do you, who do you think need to come together um like sort of what different people groups or sort of researchers will need to come together in order to solve this huge issue like it's not just you know chemists or biochemists or doctors or you know it, it seems like it's a lot more than that yeah i think you you've um, you've highlighted something that has evaded this field for a while and, and again i think that covid has really helped focus this on a uh, focus the importance of really true multidisciplinarity when you when it comes to this so that there's going to be scientific solutions to this whether it's in development of new drugs or development of new regimes to to uh, minimize the use of antibiotics. All that has to be based on scientific principles that are proven that we can actually have evidence that is real, uh, that people can believe. But we have to have a society that's willing to accept it. And we have to have uh, a global society because as, again, as I mentioned, this, this is such a, infectious organisms do not respect borders. And um, if we 
solve the problem in the UK or solve the problem so-called in Canada, it will not be enough. We have got to think about this in a very big way. And that means true international collaboration. Um, it's this economists, this is social scientists, this is public health researchers, this is investment in, in, in you know, water cleanliness infrastructure across the globe. It sounds very uh, pie in the sky, but it's it's the way to solve this problem. Uh, Alison, I mean, before you add to that, I think I, I have a small small bit to to ask. Like, what do you sort of think that the future will look like in that in that respect, or with with this interdisciplinary challenge? Like, what do you what do you think that it will where where will we end up? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I completely understand your question if it's no. where will we end up in terms of you know uh, interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinary approaches i think we're actually getting there I, I mean i do think it's quite interesting that um some organizations and institutions um say about how this is incredibly important but actually the way they um uh, their infrastructure their organization and everything does everything to actually stop this kind of multidisciplinary working. So whilst we say, yes, it's fantastic, actually, it, you need to work very hard to get these teams sometimes to work, uh, work together and be really creative and, um, and, and work, closely with, um, work you know, closely with clinicians and public health to target research as well. So I think, I think we're, we're almost there. And I think there's a, a realization of how critically important this, this is, um, uh, that it needs this approach. I think what Jerry has just said is actually, though, the, the kind of the beating heart of it, the research and the science has to be there and to shape the interventions and to, to ensure that we do have ways of optimizing use, preventing infection and get new, new agents. But without the involvement of civil society, kind of so what? I don't think politics is enough because that changes so rapidly. We absolutely need to have um, complete engagement and um, commitment um, and, and understanding um, from civil society to keep this really high on the agenda. And, you know, when, when you started this podcast and you asked the question actually uh, about, you know, what does it mean and everything, I think experts in communication and engagement and education are where we may need to focus. I think that's what's going to be needed is the permanent pressure and interest of civil society, just like for climate and the preservation of the planet, we need to have it for the preservation of healthcare um, and um, how we can use antimicrobials effectively and preserve them. It, it needs to be there at that same level of engagement. And I think we need help with that. Okay. And so with that in mind, like it, to me, it seems like a, a huge problem. Both of you've um, sort of shown me there how at least we can start to think about it and how hopefully um, we can move forward uh, with time and sort of lots of experts coming together. But imagine right now, like underneath the table in front of you, there's a briefcase. And inside that briefcase, there's like 500 million pounds with 
the current exchange rate. That's also $500 million. Ha ha, that was a fiscal joke. Um, so let's say you've got lots and lots and lots of money. What would the one thing that you do to tackle this work be? Um, and I have to say that specifically because I ask scientists this and they say, I'd quit doing science and open up a bakery somewhere. Uh, so if you had sort of this unlimited resources, what would you do to advance, not necessarily your work, but it can be your work, but work in general? Jerry, I'm going to start with you because as soon as I said 500 million uh, pounds, your eyes just lit up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a hard question because, you know, it's kind of like squeezing a balloon because... You know, there's so many areas that, that require investment in this area. Um, so I think there's a, there's an acute problem. The acute problem is that, is that very soon for certain microorganisms, we will not have effective treatments. And so if I had money right now to put into, into it, I think I would try and stop that very acute problem from happening. And that, you know, how do, how do we um, treat in particular multi-drug resistant gram negative pathogens um if there's a if there's a magic um bullet for that then i think i would invest in that although because of the economy economics of, of antibiotics I, you would never get your 500 million pounds back in the word um but i think allison brings up a really good point and that you could do that but it's it's like putting a a, a band-aid on it it's not going to fix the problem per se underlying problem and so I think I'd want to spend some of that money, honestly, in, you know, international organizations like the WHO get this, the G20 get this, the G7 get this. Um, how do we actually make that trickle down into, into more civil society? And I'd, I'd love to understand, spend some money on that aspect of it uh, as well. Um, but also, you know, it's like going to Vegas uh, or the equivalent, I guess, Monte Carlo in the, in the, in, in Europe and, and, you want to put money down on a number of different areas because I keep saying that I, I don't think anyone really has a solution to this problem. I think the solution in the 20th century and, and, uh, was the discovery of antibiotics. That changed the world, vaccines and antibiotics. Um, but going forward, I think it's going to be a whole bunch of things. It's going to be things like stage therapies. It's going to be uh, um, therapeutic antibodies. It's going to be uh, nanobodies. It's going to be you know ultra-fast uh uh, diagnostics and highly reliable diagnostics and personalized therapy. So I think I'd want to spread it around, to be honest. But the, and I'd love to hear what Allison says because she, unlike me, is, is an actual clinician, and I don't see patients. I just I just see the impact of it. And so uh, whether or not she she agrees that gram negative, multi drug resistant gram negative, is a, probably the first biggest problem that we have. Kind of yes, but of course it's still staff that's up there, um, staphylococcal infections. But I, I probably would prioritize completely the infection prevention side. Um, so uh, I would build on what Jerry says, but be even stronger about it, Alex, because I think that's the most equitable approach as well. So let's prevent the infections Let's make sure there's clean water and sanitation. Let's make sure there's vaccination. Let's also think about um, vaccination much more creatively in terms of preventing uh, preventing infections in healthcare, protecting patients, et cetera, as well. Um, so I think I think investing in infection prevention 
in the community from the most basic aspects of sanitation to how we can use vaccinations, clean water, et cetera, but also infection prevention within healthcare. Um, in Europe, um, the latest data shows that one in five prescriptions for antibiotics within healthcare are for infections that occurred within healthcare. So, you know, we could help quite a bit with that. I think we also should invest in how we can engage and educate society. Um, and by society, it, that also includes people who work in healthcare and people who are responsible for um, prescribing and using as well. So I, yeah, I think much more in the prevention side of things, um, just to kind of address the skew of research that is being targeted towards, you know, uh, new drugs, target molecules, I think we must not forget that the prevention aspect, as well as the optimizing usage, is absolutely critical. Wonderful. I mean, both of you have been absolutely fantastic today, um, which leads very nicely onto my final question. Now, if you had one key takeaway for the audience what would it be like what would you want the audience right now to go away with something that they could tell their friends or people that they particularly care about out you know near the water cooler or the 2022 version of the water cooler like a zoom hangout room or something what's the one key takeaway you'd have for people i'm i'm so if you're so your audience who are chemists i would say get involved you're all brilliant you know, your join join research or lead research or please contribute. For your non-technical audience, I would say still get involved and technical, non-technical, everybody can be ambassadors about this, um, uh, whether it's with their families, with their research groups or um, more broadly. It's something that we need to share and promote in at a personal level and also a professional and academic level. And Jerry, what about you? What would your one key takeaway for technical or non-technical for anyone be? I think, you know, as someone who's been in this field for a long time, what I think is um, the most important thing that people realize is that it's just how vulnerable we are right now. I don't think, I think those of us in the field understand this. But folks, even one, one step outside the field, simply do not grasp just how vulnerable we are right now to not or to the fact that our, our current drug arsenal is just not working in many cases. And there's no, it's not like there's a big pipeline of, of new uh, solutions coming forward. Um, it, they're just not there. And it, there's a, you know, there's science, it's a scientifically almost intractable problem, but solvable for all the, you know, to, and I would echo what Allison says. I would say all my chemist colleagues, please, you know, think about these, these very hard problems. This is a very interesting and exciting field to be in. But I don't think, you know, even if all the chemists in the world start working on it tomorrow, we wouldn't solve the problem for a decade or more to come. So there's this gap that I don't think people appreciate until they get into a solution where, they or one of their loved ones is threatened by one of these infections that we just can't treat anymore. Um, and for those of us who are who are lucky to be living in these in a 
rich societies, it's great, but it's happening every day in, uh, you know, needle, neonatology wards uh, around the world where people, where babies are dying because the drugs aren't working. Um, I mean, it's just out of sight, out of mind. I think I would love for people to understand the scope of this problem and, uh, and just how vulnerable we are because we just, we're so, we've taken antibiotics for granted, right? I grew up with antibiotics. I never knew a time before them. Um, but, you know, you can stare it down and look at the, you know, how uh, a time not so far in the future where you could be in a very bad situation with an infection that would, that is untreatable. Thank you both so much uh, for taking time out to be here today. Nice Thank to meet you. you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Bye. Bye now. Yeah. And that's it from us today. Now, I hope that you've gone away with a little bit more knowledge around antimicrobial resistance, at least like knowing what it is. I can now add super microbes into the list of things that terrify me, like between that great unending feeling that I've done absolutely nothing with my life and the heat death of the universe. Make sure to join us next week where I chat with microbiologist Dr. Vicky Savage and Professor Colm Leonard, consultant clinical advisor to NICE, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence. All right, see you next time. Mm-hmm.